Hey, this is Britt from resistradio.com and I'm pleased to be joined by writer, researcher, filmmaker and new Resistance Radio host, Tom Secker. Nice to speak to you, Tom. Yeah, good talking to you. How are you doing today? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. You? Yeah, pretty good, yeah. I know that you've got a, an interest in this case that we're going to be discussing, which is the Bravik case. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's... Um... I have an interest in the whole terrorism thing, obviously. I mean, that's kind of what I what I largely focus on. But this one, it's just because I've kind of got this gut feeling that there's there's more going on here, um, but without being able to kind of specifically say where that's coming from and what the evidence is for that. So mm-hmm. whenever you feel like that, the only answer is, you know, just to keep looking into it and keep gathering more string and more information until until you feel you can get somewhere, until you've got a, you know, a better grasp on what's actually going on. Yeah, that's it. It's kind of a slippery conspiracy, and there's so many different angles that you could take on it. Um, what I'd like to do first, though, is actually respond to something that you were talking about in your show on Sunday, because you were talking about the possibility that this is going to actually polarise society and, and split society into maybe the extreme left and the extreme right, and... I thought that was pretty interesting because I've been following the the trial over the last week and actually Anders Breivik himself uh, stated that that's what he wanted to do and I'm just going to read out a few quotes which was taken from the Guardian's coverage on day three of the trial. Um, It just says Breivik insisted that his goal in the short to medium term was to make pariahs of Europe's nationalists, the very people with whom you might expect him to feel kinship. I thought I had to provoke a witch hunt of modern, moderately conservative nationalists, he said. Then he claimed that this curious strategy had already borne fruit, citing the example of Norway's Prime Minister Jens Stoltenberg, who he said had given a speech since the attacks, saying that critics of immigration were wrong. The effect of this witch hunt, said Breivik, would be to increase censorship of moderately nationalist views, which would increase polarisation. The effect of this, he said would eventually lead to more radicalization as more will lose hope and lose faith in democracy. Ultimately, he said, these new radicals would join the war he has started to protect the indigenous people of Norway and Western Europe. So I don't know whether you were aware of that. He'd actually said that on the third day of the trial, but that actually you know, fits in with what you were talking about in your show. Uh, no, I must admit, I had, I had no idea. I haven't read that article. You'll, you'll have to email me the link. But... Mm. Um, it's, I mean, it's in keeping with various comments that Breivik's made. That, I mean, I'm, I'm a little surprised I haven't come across that. So, you know, well well done for pulling it out. Because um, that really does lay, lay it out quite clearly that um, this is a man who understands that it isn't as simple. I mean, one of the things I was talking about in my show on Sunday um, was that it's a lot of people have tried to simplify this. Um, and this is one of the things that's bothered me so much about the case is that we know very little about it ultimately I mean there's more and more information coming out now because of this trial and that's you know that's great in some ways because it means we we've actually got something to go on Um, but you know how it was in the days you know almost as soon as this happened it was like everyone was leaping on this horrible tragic event to serve their own agenda you had you know people who you had the left saying, oh, you know, this is the rise of the far right. This is the danger of the far right. You had the right and the far right sort of saying, well, we deplore the violence. But, you know, there is something to what he was saying. There is something to his motives. So they're both using it to advance their political agendas. You had, obviously, sort of uh, ethnic minorities, specifically Muslim groups, um, who I suppose, would you say they're on the left? I suppose they are on the left, ultimately. Uh, or mo- most most of them anyway, um, they were also saying this, how, you know, this is a, a symbol of how, how Muslims have been targeted. And you also, then you have your, if you like, conspiracy theorists sort of saying, oh, it was obviously a false flag and Breivik's just a patsy and, you know, there are certain inconsistencies in the story. And, you know, there's always going to be inconsistencies in a story mm. as it's rolling out in a couple of days after it's happened. Yeah. That, isn't, that isn't conclusive proof of something much dodgier than that so you see what i mean everyone was kind of almost trying to exploit this to push whatever agenda it is they already had and Mm -hmm. i'm i'm very big on resisting that 
um, resisting the temptation to just kind of subs- subsume this under your general understanding of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the notion that this was, oh, I don't know, one of the theories, I think you mentioned this on your show, was that this could be about demonizing nationalism. Yeah. And I kind of discussed this a bit, and I'm not sure. I think it's a possibility, or it's one, certainly it's one predictable outcome if you were going to set up something like this, that that would be one of the predictable outcomes of it. Um, but that doesn't mean that that's what was going on here, that that's all that this is about. I think it is more complex. And those comments from Breivik, coming back to, to those, I mean, what it indicates is that he understands that carrying out an act of horrific violence is, in a lot of ways, going to bring a lot of criticism and a lot of hatred and a lot of... I mean, he says he was trying to inspire explicit censorship against Mm. other people who believe those sorts of things or similar sorts of things. Um, And so this wasn't just about, you know, promoting one particular view or demonizing another particular view. It's more complicated than that. It's it's not just a sort of simple one or the other. Exactly, yeah. And it's it's too simplistic to to try and pass him off as a madman because, you know, the planning that went into this and... uh, what I've just read out, I mean, that shows that he has a full understanding of what he's doing and it might be, you know, chilling to, to most people, but I certainly don't think he's a, a madman. No, I'm with you on that. He's, his behaviour, the way he set this, planned this, uh, you know, the, the way he carried it out, everything about it and everything he said in court, I mean, he's, he's obviously a deeply unpleasant man, uh, but I don't think he's crazy. He comes across as, if anything, extraordinarily rational. Yeah. There's actually one more paragraph uh, to this part of the article on, I want to on. read out, um, which actually shows his you know, full understanding of what he's doing. Uh, he said this logic was understood by very few and that he had received letters from Norwegian and European nationalists saying, what are you doing? We are getting no support as a result of this. He added, I don't expect anybody to understand this. The only ones who understand this are themselves ultra-nationalists. <laughs> so it's a real right. attempt to um yeah to to ferment this crackdown on on the more moderate nationalists and then bring the ultra nationalists into into action and to obviously you know copy what he did himself mm mm well i mean and, and this whole thing goes back to or is extremely reminiscent of gladio uh the very very long running kind of nato intelligence services um operation in europe and, I mean, I'm just thinking, there's, there's several different ways we can go on this. It is actually, it's curious. When, when Breivik was on the island, when he was on the island of Atoya, slaughtering these teenagers, um, and he phoned up the police to kind of hand himself in, if you like, to admit to what he was doing and kind of say, come and get me, come and stop me. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of kind of strange reporting over how many times did he call them, how many times did he get through who did he speak to, all of this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But on one of the transcripts of these conversations that he apparently had, um, when he first phoned them up, he said, you know, I am Commander Anders Breivik of the Norwegian anti-communist resistance. Yeah. Now, that's extremely kind of reminiscent of Gladio, because the way Gladio was first set up was as a series of stay-behind units when, you know, the, the British and the Americans withdrew from Europe at the end of the Second World War we left various units in place, you know, MI6, CIA, and we're talking spying units, sabotage units, all of this kind of thing. And their purpose was, if there was a, then the communists, the Soviets, take advantage and decide to move into Western Europe, uh, we've already got units in place to fight them and to, you know, immediately provide a resistance force. So this notion of an anti-communist resistance force is extremely close to, to the Gladio thing. Now, it's hard to say from that one comment, you know, does this mean Breivik is somehow part of a Norwegian Gladio unit or, or whatever you might kind of draw from that. Mm-hmm. But what it does show is that he's aware of this history. He's aware of this uh, this use of militancy and explicitly terrorism, acts of terrorist violence, as a subtle political tool um, in, a, in a much kind of larger geopolitical struggle. And that you know, the guy, whatever criticisms you might make of him, he's certainly not stupid. He certainly isn't stupid. No, he definitely seem, not, no. He, he seems to really grasp, kind of... He's, he's sort of got a horrible worldview, but 
in a way, it's a horrible worldview that has ultimately been informed and educated by a lot of very true things. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, this whole strategy of tension thing in particular, what was so important about Gladio was that they were using militant groups, terrorist groups, on both the left and the right as proxies in this, and sometimes even fighting against one another. Um, so you you had a group like uh, Ordine Nuovo in Italy that was basically invented by the Ita- Italian military intelligence. Their their boss, their capo, uh, was a guy called Pino Rauti. He was working for Italian military intelligence all along. The whole thing was just a sort of front organization. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you did have other groups like Avangardia Nazionale who were if you like, authentic neo-Nazi, neo-fascist groups who were kind of co-opted and manipulated and provoked. And then on the left, you had uh, the Red Brigades um, who started out as a kind of authentic communist militant or at least leftist militant group. But then they kind of locked up all of their original leadership and replaced them with a a bunch of spies. Mm -hmm. So, and, and, and the thing in that was that they weren't, always using this in the same way it wasn't just about demonizing communism and advancing fascism i suppose as its opposite um it was it was about just creating a general sense of fear a general climate of fear this is the strategy of tension Mm -hmm. where people are all divided and they're all suspicious and they're all looking at each other and you know they're all aware of the possibility that anyone could be a secret you know, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And as a result, the general direction of the countries, the general direction of Europe, the general direction of the world, was we need greater and greater security. And it was in that period when you had this, you know, Europe had masses and, you know, huge amounts of, of, of terrorist violence from the period about 1960 to, I suppose, 9-11. Um, it hasn't actually... I mean, by comparison, we have very little terrorism now. That's something that a lot of people need to grasp, is that there's actually very few terrorist attacks taking place today compared with, you know, the height of the IRA in the 1970s or the height of the Italian violence in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, very, you know, the direction of the world throughout that whole period was that these, the security services became more and more powerful they remained almost completely secretive, but they got more and more money, they got more and more people, they got more and more sort of uh, legislation normalising what they could do and saying, yeah, we are, you are actually allowed to spy on people and lie and cheat and even, in some cases, kill um, in order to carry out our, our political objectives. Mm-hmm. So, so that's fundamentally what the strategy of tension is about. It's not just about anti-communism. It kind of started from that point, but it did become something more... Uh, sort of less explicitly political and more about advancing the national security state. Mm-hmm. Now, you're, you're more researched in um, in Operation Gladio than me. I mean, was it predominantly false flag attacks that were carried out under the strategy of tension? Because that obviously leads to the question of, you know, how, how could this be interpreted as a false flag? Because it hasn't been blamed on, a, on another group, has it? So it's different in that respect to your classic false flag if indeed it you know it did have higher forces uh, manipulating it um most of the gladio attacks were false flags or at least became false flags mm-hmm. in as much as a lot of them were carried out by you know right-wing terrorists who were proxies part of these proxy organizations uh, and these infiltrated organizations um and they would carry out the attack, they would kill the people, plant the bomb, whatever, and the whole thing would be blamed on leftists, anarchists, communists, socialists, whoever they could sort of blame who was on the left. But those two pr- processes weren't necessarily and weren't always in a kind of pre-planned, you know, we've drawn this out, we're going to get our right-wing terrorists to carry out an atrocity and we're going to blame it on the left. Sometimes it seems that was very, it was very explicitly planned out in advance and that is exactly what they were trying to do. Um, but you also had situations whereby these neo-Nazis sort of went off on their own a bit and, you know, decided to kill someone or plant a bomb somewhere and kill some people, and then the mechanism of the state would be to come in and cover the thing up and blame it on leftists anyway without having that premeditated, we know this is going to happen and we know who we're going to blame it on. Mm -hmm. So 
So you don't necessarily need that component for it to be somehow related, in, in the Breivik case, for it to somehow be related to these institutions and these processes and, you know, the, these, if you like, traditions in covert ops. Mm-hmm. So, so we could we could use the phrase that um, Peter Dale Scott uses, which is uh, systemic destabilization, maybe, just a general sort of chaos caused by events like this, which feed into uh, the, the general sense of disorientation and uh, and fear, which ultimately benefits the people who are maybe manipulating this whole thing. Well, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, it, it could be. Um, I suppose all, all I'm really saying there is that, well, yeah, no, let's stick with the Gladio parallel. In, in Belgium in the 1980s, you had this series of massacres, the Brabant massacres, um, where people would literally just, you know, walk into a supermarket, usually two or three armed men in balaclavas with shotguns or machine guns, and they'd just kill random people, mm-hmm. um, kill a couple of dozen of them and walk away. It was, you know, the most kind of naked violence that you can't, I mean, you can't understand why anyone would do that. They didn't phone in any warnings, they didn't issue any statements, they didn't make any demands, they didn't do any of the normal things that a, a political terrorist group would do mm-hmm. uh, in order to advertise their cause or promote their cause or try and accomplish some you know, specific, specific aim through this violence. It was almost simply not violence as an end in itself, but violence as a means to fear, which yeah. is ultimately as a means to security. That's mm-hmm. the kind of general arching pattern of this. So I do wonder, given the similarities between Breivik's massacre on Latoya Island and these Brabant massacres, whether it is more something like that that we're looking at. But of course he did, or at least appears to have left this video and this manifesto, which do kind of identify him very much as a, a right-winger, a nationalist, to some extent a Zionist, to some extent a racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... There are, I mean, that's a distinction worth making. That's that's worth bearing in mind that, you know, in the Brabant massacres, we didn't have that dimension of it. But that doesn't mean there aren't parallels to be drawn. I think it could be about systemic de- destabilization. It could just simply be about fear as a means to security. Mm-hmm. I mean, I find it just impossible to believe that he could have planned and carried this out all by himself. I mean, not necessarily in terms of him being... Um, accompanied on the island, for example, although there were reports of like another gunman on the island, but I simply find it impossible that he could have you know planned this whole thing by himself and yeah, you refer to the videos there, the video that he released, and um you know Peter Dale Scotts talked about the similarities with another guy 's video, uh, Nick Gregor, <clears> and <throat> this whole sort of uh, christian freedom fighter movement there 's reports about. Breivik himself traveling to Liberia and he said that there's a you know a whole network of these people and the authorities seem to be strangely dismissive of everything that he said and I don't really understand why because you know based on the evidence so far he's not a pathological liar and I don't really see why he would have a reason to make that up to be honest I mean he has admitted to having embellished aspects um he's he's described his manifesto as being deliberately pompous and he even referred to the uniforms that he took photos of himself in as being pompous so he's definitely tried to project maybe an exaggerated image but I just don't understand why he would lie about these other cells that he says exist and I find it strange that the authorities have said outright you know we don't we don't believe this exists we don't believe this network exists I just I don't understand that have you any idea why, why that might be well, I mean, you're, at, you're kind of asking several different questions in one there. So, well, let's try and take them in order. Um, you started off with a, your, your disbelief that he acted alone, that he could have carried out this meticulous plot purely by himself. And I've got to say, if he did, it is probably the best carried out lone wolf, lone terrorist attack in history. Yeah. Um, I've I've never. I mean, I've, I've read about a lot of different terrorism cases, both ones that you know involved the state and ones that just were kind of organic terrorist cases. Um, and I've never come across one that was sort of, if you like, from a strategic point of view, from a kind of military tactics point of view, that was done as well as this was done. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's a rather kind of horrible way to look at it. But his his massacre on the island where 
He killed, uh, I think, 69 people. The vast majority of the victims in this attack were killed in this gun rampage on the island. Um, and that is a kind of world record for a spree killing. I don't think anyone's ever man managed to kill. That's the wrong way of putting it. I don't think anyone has gone on a spree killing a single shooter and killed anything like that number of people. I think previously you're talking about 30 or 40, so half the number. Um, so there is an element there that you wonder, could he have achieved? Could he have done all this, acting as one man, acting on his own? I think the stories of an additional gunman on the island were never really confirmed. I've never, I mean, for example, I've never seen a named witness being interviewed saying, I saw another gunman, I thought there was another gunman. It's just one of those things that kind of you've seen in a few news stories, but I've never kind of found a firm source for it. So I'm, I'm inclined at this point anyway to kind of disbelieve that. Uh, there, is... there definitely was one named witness, actually. Um, oh, go on. I don't have the name on me, but I did actually yeah, sure. read that earlier. It was one person who went on record and said that they saw... Or actually, they didn't see another gunman. What it was, they reported um, gunshots from different places on the island. But, you know, as you mentioned earlier, there's lots of inconsistencies and people are obviously panicked at a time like this, so we can't well, rely that, totally on, on things like that. Well, exactly. I'm not saying explicitly there wasn't an additional gunman. There may have been, but what I'm saying is, in terms of trying to reconstruct this and make sense of it, I don't think we can hedge too much on the, the words of a sort of uh, mm. traumatised victim. Exactly. And, and also, you've got to remember, this is a very small island. It's only like 24 acres. It's a small, small island. In an hour and a half, you could walk over it several times. So... The notion, firstly, the notion that he would somehow have to be sprinting around killing these people—that's not true. You know, mm -hmm. they were, you were talking about 600 people on 24 acres. It's not that difficult for him to kill 70 of them in an hour, an hour and a half. It's horrible, I know, but possible. Um, and yeah, so that maybe this person thinks they—you know—this person who says that they saw heard gunshots from different parts of the island when the island is that small it's not that easy to say because you, you're only i mean think about how big 24 acres is it's only i don't know the size of a small football stadium or something maybe a bit bigger than that yeah um you could easily be mistaken about that is basically what i'm saying yeah so let's yeah. so we shouldn't pin too much on that although who knows maybe more evidence will come out on that and and you know we'll all change our mind um but it, it actually it's the bombing in Oslo that I find more indicative in some ways of the notion that there was more people involved in actually carrying out the attack. If we will set aside the video and the manifesto for a moment, mm -hmm. um, in as much as when you look at the videos and the photos from this supposed truck bombing outside the government building, it it seems to have exploded in a very very strange way it seems to have caused almost a random pattern of of, uh, of damage, of violence against people and buildings in the area. It doesn't seem to have kind of exploded how you would expect a truck bomb exploding in open air would go off. There's a sort of fire in one corner of the building on the top floor, you know, across the street, but there's no fire in the lower floors, and, you know, some of the windows are broken and some of the windows aren't broken when you would have expected them to pretty much all be shattered if this blast wave is hitting them. There's, a, there's windows broken in, in shops sort of two, three, four streets away, but only one or two of them are broken and not the one next to it. So there, are, there is some weird stuff in there. Maybe there is rational explanations for all of these, mm -hmm. these phenomena, but there are suggestions, I think. In, in the photographs and in the videos that there could have been more than one explosion which obviously would mean mm -hmm. a, a bigger conspiracy yeah i mean there's just some inf information come out today um during the trial that there were reports um of other bombs in the building and mm -hmm. um of a second person uh, being at the scene they, they initially thought it was another person with breivik and he was described as a dark-skinned man mm. so they were actually um they actually thought it was two people initially. Um, I can't remember who it was that said that, but it was someone, it was like the head of security for the building or, or something like that. I can't remember the exact details, but... Yeah, no, some... sure, sure, okay. Um, well, this is all sounding very reminiscent of Oklahoma City, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You've yeah. got this supposed right-wing, white, nationalistic 
terrorist nutter driving his truck bomb to outside a government building, apparently being seen with a Asian or dark-skinned man, or and and also evidence of you know explosions within the buildings and not just outside them. I'm I mean. I'm just drawing that parallel. I'm not saying that's what happened by any means. I'm just saying that's when you mentioned that I had not read that before about this 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 second man. I had seen some of the reports and things about uh, additional bombs going off or additional explosions within the buildings, but I'd not read this thing about you know uh, a John Doe number two. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the, that's very much what just flitted through my mind when you said that. And the whole thing does sound a bit like Oklahoma City in as much as. It seems that Tim McVeigh did play a role in carrying out that attack, but it also seems that there must, there simply must have been more going on. And again, with this Breivik thing, I think he, he probably did drive that truck bomb there. I think he probably did shoot people on that island, but that doesn't mean that's the sum total of the story. Mm-hmm. And you, you do get this feeling that maybe there's, there's more to it. And this, I mean, this brings up the question of um, uh, the, the training exercise which is one of those things that obviously the Alex Joneses and, and the Webster Tartleys have focused on enormously. Um, and I've tried to dig around in, in the reporting on this. It's not easy because an awful lot of it is in Norwegian and I have to read it through translation and obviously the translators aren't great. Mm. But what, what seems to have happened here is that one story has sort of become transmogrified into another. You have the true story, which is that there was a... Uh, some sort of bombing exercise running in Oslo in the days before the attack that finished on the afternoon, uh, about half an hour before the bomb went off. That does seem to be real. That does seem to have actually happened. There is, you know, relatively credible reporting on that. Um, But this has somehow got twisted into there was also an exercise involving a shooter going on a rampage on Otoya Island. That doesn't seem to be true. That okay. seems to be based on a bit of misreporting and, in fact, a few people digging up an article that had been written a year before about a training exercise on an island oh, and, right. and, you know, somehow managing to either get the two stories confused or weave them together or were just looking for something to turn into a theory and therefore have, have leapt on this. So I think there was a, a, a anti-bombing or bombing exercise in Oslo. I don't think there was an exercise on the island. I haven't seen any credible evidence of that. So that's an important again an important thing to bear in mind when looking at all of this okay yeah i didn't but actually yet, know that hmm. um but yeah so you have this uh you have an exercise going on based around the scenario isn't identical in the exercise and in the at least official version of the real attack in as much as from what i can read the exercise in oslo was based around bombs inside buildings rather than a truck bomb outside a building but that of course would then perhaps you know give us a hint of an explanation as to where this additional damage is coming from and where this damage that appears inconsistent with a single truck bomb going off outside the building why that has happened um or it could have been one way in which that was actually carried out or it could be a red herring it could have nothing to do with it um we we can't be certain at this point we need we need more information than we have yeah, here's the info that just just came out this morning. Actually, uh, testifying in Breivik's trial, police operations leader Tor Langley said the initial reports he received after the blast suggested that there were uh, two suspects and two other bombs about to explode. Uh, Langley said he first got a report of a suspect with a non-Nordic appearance leaving the scene. He then got another report of a Nordic-looking suspect, which made him believe there were two suspects. So I mean, yeah, of course, I mean this could be one of the inconsistencies that always happens, but. Yeah, I mean, in in sort of combination with this uh, drill, um, I mean, it's possible that you know this was uh, you know being being manipulated and monitored, but you know we well, can't really is... say at the moment with the the evidence available. Well, sure. and, and another another thing we think I think we should bear in mind, and I'm sure you'll agree with this, is that there is a distinct possibility of a non-state conspiracy here mm-hmm. um, that. We're not just looking the, the you know the conventional suspect is the security and military services of the country where the attack has happened yeah. um, if you're talking about that you know attack that has certain questions hanging over it and certain bits of evidence suggesting that there's more to it, then that they are the usual suspects and okay, fair enough, I can understand that um, 
but there is also the possibility of of course foreign state or military services or even just non-state actors some sort of if you like right-wing conspiracy of this this network that Breivik says that he belongs to mm-hmm. um and that therefore there were perhaps additional bombs inside the building to maximize the damage or perhaps there was an additional shooter or at least some other form of help maybe someone helped Breivik build the bomb in the first place because it's not the easiest thing to do to build a I think it was you know it was nearly a ton this thing it was several hundred kilos of, of, mm-hmm. of explosive that's not that any easier thing to just make and, and store safely and transport it's um it, it's so there again you have a sort of hint of more people involved of, of, of some sort of wider conspiracy than just Breivik acting alone mm-hmm. um and you mentioned he mentioned before that he doesn't come across as a pathological liar, and therefore it, it's odd that he might, that he would sort of make up, if he is making it up, that he would make up this larger network, this sort of Knights Templar or Christian liberationists or sort of whatever tag you want to put on them. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't come across as a pathological liar, but he does come across as quite narcissistic, uh, and that, you know, although there is quite a lot of dispute over his psychological psychiatric uh, state uh, his, his his state of mind um the, all the different analyses do seem to agree the guy is narcissistic he, he likes the attention he's very much seems to be enjoying being on trial and being given this platform so there is another indication of well if he's that narcissistic why is he trying to share out the credit as he sees it for this attack mm, that's a good point yeah uh why would he do that yeah. Surely he'd want to take all the credit himself and say, you know, I am the great Anders Breivik, I am the, the lone Christian Zionist soldier who is trying to drive the Muslims out of Europe, or whatever it is that he believes. Um, it, it, it doesn't make much sense to invent this wider network. It doesn't fit in with his sort of his psychological makeup, I don't think, to do that. So, unless the whole purpose of the thing was simply to draw attention to this cause and if you like try and provide a focal event for this nationalistic kind of movement or different nationalistic movements in which case he might I suppose you could say he might have made up a wider network to try and glorify that and to try and make people feel that they were part of something bigger than they really were that it wasn't so much him deluding himself as him trying to inspire other like-minded people to believe that there is this great big network and that we are on the verge of a great kind of race war or war of civilizations in Europe or something. Mm-hmm. That's one possibility for why he might have, he, he could have invented this, this thing. And you're right, it is a bit odd that the authorities are so adamantly denying that there's, there could be any kind of wider problem or, or wider struggle here. Because, I mean, we know that there are plenty of other nationalistic groups out there um i mean you've in your coverage of this you've talked about his ties to the english defense league and the jewish defense league mm-hmm. and and you've also got sort of similar national front kind of organizations in in france and i think you still have a vestige of the neo-nazi thing going on in germany of all places i mean yeah. even though they've tried so hard to dissociate themselves from from their nazi history and to try and get over that and move away from it i still think there is you know, there's an element of that there so there are more groups and there are more people who think like Breivik, at least up to a point at least politically if not i'm not saying they're going to go out and and carry out massacres um so their denial of any sort of wider network is almost demonstrably false the only question is how close how closely tied are we talking about are we talking about an organization that has ranks and some sort of hierarchical structure with orders being passed down or are we talking about uh a more loosely knit kind of uh lateral horizontal network of like a cell structure like al-qaeda supposedly was mm-hmm. um yeah, I mean, not only has he talked about being connected to other people, I mean, there is actually evidence for him being in the places he said he was uh, at the times he said he was. There was um, evidence that he was in London in 2002 when he says yeah, that yeah. the uh, the Knights Templar sort of had its inaugural meeting. Uh, there's evidence of him being in, in Liberia as well. So it's not like there's no evidence for what he's saying either. So it makes the kind of uh, 
dismissiveness of the of the authorities yeah even even odder um well and he talks about having a mentor in britain who yeah. we're, we're not quite sure who this is i mean there's there's a, at least a couple of suspects likely yeah. suspects but but there again is he talking about a mentor in a kind of ideological sense someone who inspired him or is he talking about a mentor in the sense of a handler someone who helped him do this and pre- pre- prepared him for doing this mm-hmm. it's it's hard to know quite how to interpret that one yeah i've been trying to do some more research into the the, the mentor richard the lionhearted because um, this was was blamed on a guy called uh, paul ray who mm. blogs under the name uh, lionheart he's actually living in in malta now i think he had to leave um, England because he was facing charges of, of, of something related to um, I, don't, I don't know what he was facing charges for but he had to leave England anyway and he fell out with the EDL because he was one of the founding members of the EDL and he's writing this blog and he keeps making insinuations that the mentor Richard the Lionhearted is this Alan Ailing character who's this kind of shadowy uh, financier and uh, planner for the English Defence League but um, yeah, I, co- I contacted uh, uh, this Paul Ray the other day, and he wasn't very forthcoming with any kind of evidence. So it leads me to sus- you know suspect that he doesn't actually have any evidence, and it's some kind of uh, grudge that he has against against Alan Ailing. So yeah, I don't really think that Ailing is is the mentor. But who is Richard the Lionhearted, and why aren't the police you know trying to find out who this guy is and who the other people were that were at this first meeting? quite an important aspect of it really well and and also why are they why are they kind of leaving it um if you like leaving it to just to stand this notion of bravik being a um a, a lone wolf when there's sort of so many indications that that there was more going on um why why are they just sort of willing to accept that because the point ultimately from the perspective of, say, the British security services, should be, but clearly isn't, that if there's half a chance that this guy was actually part of a wider network and that therefore there is a potential Anders Breivik knocking around England somewhere just waiting for the the opportunity or just biding their time um, before they do something like this, then surely the important thing would be to establish whether or not that is true and if it is true to try and find these people. Mm -hmm. But, But there is this pattern in this country particularly noticeable in britain whereby if you're say a muslim and you've watched a few jihadi videos on the internet and maybe you've got a couple of bottles of hair bleach and a bag of ball bearings in your bedroom i I remember there was one lad who was thrown in prison for that was basically what you know all the evidence against him and they make a big fuss about them and they call them radicals and extremists and terrorists and say you know we are shutting down the the muslimists the islamist networks in britain and all the rest of it um yet you know when some sort of nationalistic right-winger has a garden shed full of weaponry and lots of equipment for making bombs for some reason they don't put that in the paper anywhere near as much they don't you know it gets reported on we still find out about it but it will typically be one article in the guardian and one article in the independent and they're Mm. obviously ostensibly left-wing newspapers um so that's why they're reporting on it but you won't get anything like the lurid voyeuristic coverage that we get in in islamic terror terror cases mm-hmm. um so there clearly is a certain degree of prejudice there uh whether that prejudice is more about sort of just mentality and just the way that the security services think or whether it's more about they actually kind of want the nationalists there because they may be useful in some way and nationalists, you know, they are very, for the most part, they're very pro-military, for one thing. They're very pro-police, yeah. for the most, for, on the most part. So you can see why that agenda does serve the national security state and why they would actually want to not crack down on it too hard because, you know, it, it does serve a purpose. It is kind of useful to them in a certain kind of a way. So yeah. maybe that is part of the explanation for why they don't seem to be chasing this possibility of a wider conspiracy with Breivik. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe there's that dynamic at play. Yeah, possibly. I mean, it, it was just surprising to me that the people wouldn't be investigated when you've got people like Roberta Moore basically making veiled threats. Um, she actually said, there's going to be another Breivik, 
and you know it's going to be even worse than what he did and you know if a, if a Muslim person made that statement in Britain I'm sure they would be investigated so I really hope these um, these characters are like Roberta Moore and um, Tommy Robinson as well uh, there's actually been a series of arrests in Luton today uh, five young men have been arrested and charged with uh, planning ter- the terrorist attack um, and I'm kind of interested to see what comes of that because whether that's going to turn out to be uh, Muslims or whether that might even be people connected to the English Defence League who are based in Luton No, sure, sure, and, and Luton is one of those places that Breivik talked a lot about, in fact there were a few local politicians in the news the, the other week complaining about why everyone sort of has such a downer on Luton and why the, the only times when Luton gets in the international press is in, in connection with some terrorist massacre mm. which I can, I can kind of sympathise with them on that one to be honest because it's not, it's not a nice thing to be associated with, it's not a good reason to see your town's name in the paper no. But, but no uh, yeah we'll have to follow this story about the arrests I had seen, I'd seen the headline, I haven't read the story and, and we don't seem to have any details on exactly mm-hmm. who these people are or what the hell they were doing, if anything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, 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 there is a potential connection there, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, you were just mentioning about how the media would you know, publish all of this about a Muslim uh, who'd been you know, suspected of being a terrorist, but they might not about an English nationalist or whatever. I mean, I was thinking, you know, the kind of authorities have indirectly... Um, kind of encouraged um, I'll have to be careful what I'm saying here but basically what I'm trying to say is you know, over the last decade Muslims have been so uh, demonised that they've also played into this anti-Muslim feeling that you know, Breivik has kind of uh, brought to a, you know, a violent head here um, we've seen over the last decade this constant yeah, demonisation of Muslims and the general feeling now is that you know, people are pretty suspicious of, of Muslims in Britain, I think, or a lot of people anyway. And no, sure, sure. It's it's one of the problems um, that was actually kind of touched upon in that uh, RT crosstalk episode that I played some of in my, in my show on Sunday night, that, you know, if you, if you look at the Labour Party who were in power, you know, for, what was it, three, four years before 9-11 until nearly a decade after 9-11 so basically that whole 9-11 decade we had the Labour Party in power and Labour Party historically their base their their support are white working class trade unionists right? Mm-hmm. Um, yet in having to kind of come to terms with multiculturalism the left in particular has almost become a sort of conglomeration of different what are called special interest groups and for some reason women are thrown in as a special interest group as though they don't make up 50% of the population um, <laughs> but but you know what I mean they're sort of the left has tried to sort of be the representatives usually by being middle class white men but be the representatives of Muslims of black people of other ethnic minorities or other minorities of, diff, of you know non-ethnic minorities mm-hmm. um, and as a result they have sort of alienated to a certain extent uh, the white working class base that they well, was their base for a hundred years beforehand of the whole existence of the Labour Party basically um, and also because of Labour's economic policies which was very pro-immigration it was you know let's get as, as many as much cheap labour into the country as possible in order to inflate the economy in order to raise taxes so that we can spend it on the NHS and that was the third way economics of, of new labour yeah. Um, and in doing all of this, they managed to alienate at least a proportion of, a chunk of the white working class mm-hmm. who have now been snapped up by UKIP and then further to the right you've got people like the EDL and I would say the BNP are probably to the right of UKIP. Yeah. But the spectrum is, you know, the left-right spectrum is, is dodgy at best if not completely misleading. Um, <laughs> so it doesn't really matter where it, it is they are on it. But, you know, that support, that... I mean, I was, I was seeing the other day, the, the latest opinion poll says UKIP have got 8% support in this country. That's almost as much as the Liberal Democrats. And that's pretty much all come from Labour's support, not from the Tories. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so we have that dynamic at play, that as Labour has sort of adopted these economic policies and these cultural policies, 
But at the same time, Labour were very much pushing the, you know, dangerous Islamic terrorist threat for the, for all of those years. Mm-hmm. And was that partly about paying lip service to this myth that seems to have come from America and is largely about foreign policy, but is also about security, domestic security policy of you know, we need to invade the Middle East to somehow stop them sending their terrorists here. I, I don't really know how it was ever supposed to add up. Um, but is it also about them trying to win back the white working class from these more nationalistic movements that that have kind of sprung up over the last 10, 15 years since we had New Labour? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think that that's a dynamic that's also at play here, certainly. That's interesting, yeah. Um, also, I, I mean, we've had... Uh, leaders such as um, Cameron and um, also Angela Merkel, I think a couple of years ago, they made these statements about multi- multiculturalism having failed. And at the time, I remember thinking, you know, this is really quite irresponsible because these people have, you know, effectively caused the situation, and then they're just making this, you know, blunt statement that that it's failed, which which isn't helpful on, on any level. And that also kind of plays into um, Breivik's rhetoric, really. In fact, he actually. Uh, quoted uh, Cameron and Merkel during the trial this week when they when they said that so there's all right, kinds of right. yeah all kinds of factors at play here and you know different tensions and uh, well I certainly agree with you that these policies like you said before that these policies to some extent seem to have inspired Breivik and seem to have at least promoted his worldview if not necessarily promoted his and, and inspired his actions um, and yeah that's that statement always struck me as a very not even a careless thing to to say it was almost a a nasty vicious thing to say that multiculturalism has failed not that multiculturalism currently isn't working very well not that you know immigration in a globalized world is inevitable but is always going to cause some problems and you know it's up to politics to actually find some answers to these problems nothing like that but just this kind of blanket tabloid headline kind of statement it has failed Mm -hmm. i'm not you know i'm not sort of saying it's it's succeeded and everything's wonderful and there are no problems from immigration and all the rest of it i am I, i will say i am ultimately an anarchist as far as i'm concerned the state doesn't need to exist and anyone should really be able to go anywhere but that's kind of idealistic given mm-hmm. where the world is right now yeah. um in a state capitalist model large-scale immigration is going to cause problems um and it does and i'm not denying that but to just say that it, it has failed well okay so what do we do now yeah, I mean, yeah. we're in a multicultural society, but you're saying it's failed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's not 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 really the sort of message you would have thought political leaders would put out there. No. It's basically like them saying our, our system's screwed. Sorry, but it's screwed. Yeah. Um, it, it, yeah, it was a very strange, very strange moment, and I do wonder if if there's what what was behind that. You know, what was their motive there? Because I can't really figure it out looking at it from the outside. Yeah, and it, it happened roughly the same time as well. Um, Merkel said it, uh, Cameron, and I think Sarkozy as well. They all said it within the space of about a week or two. And um, I just thought at the time, you know, this is really suspicious timing. And yeah, just you know, it was um, it was just a very ir- irresponsible thing to to say that I felt at the time. Um, well, and, and and inflammatory. It feeds yeah, yeah. into going back to where we started. It feeds into a strategy of tension. It feeds into this mutual suspicion, this paranoid, you know, sort of schizo state where everyone's worrying about everyone else and everyone's suspecting everyone else. When in reality, we actually live in extremely peaceful and pretty well-off countries. We don't have that much to be afraid of and that much to be concerned about. But yeah. yet, we we so easily get whipped up into into these states of fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, um, just moving on to a, a slightly different angle, um, I found it quite interesting that there's been really no mention from Breivik. I haven't actually read his manifesto. I mean, I do have it, but it's obviously 1,500 pages long. But um, you're not been... missing that much. No. Well, I think 60% of it is like is cut and pasted, isn't it? He's mm-hmm. admitted this week. Um, but yeah, there's there's been no kind of mention of the way that. Western authorities and the Western intelligence services um, have manipulated and exploited uh, Muslim so-called extremists. You know, because Breivik has studied all of these terror attacks. In fact, he he specifically named the Oklahoma City bombing and also the the first World Trade Center bombing. And he's mm-hmm. obviously researched Al Qaeda extensively, mm-hmm. but there doesn't seem to be any reference to yeah the fact that these groups are 
you know used by by the west to to further their agenda and i i personally would have thought that you know breivik would have been well aware of these kinds of theories and ideas and and the hard facts about about that kind of information if he's spent so much time on the internet doing research um no, that's a fair point. I, I, it hadn't occurred to me, but you're dead right. I mean, there's, abs- there's basically no mention in his entire manifesto, as I remember, of the security services doing anything, let alone their involvement with, with terrorism and, and with extremism and, and militants and all the rest of it. Hmm. And, and you're dead right. I mean, there's, there's, I, find it, I always find it very strange, actually, whenever I read anyone who says that they've done an awful lot of research on al-Qaeda um, and talking about al-qaeda specifically i mean you can you can use you can find the same things in lots with lots of other movements um but anyone who sort of says you know they've done meticulous research on this and it does seem that breivik has looked into this to a considerable extent mm-hmm. but they don't seem to have discovered that you know about 60 percent of these people are in some way connected to the security services yeah um i i find it baffling that they they managed to miss that one i mean missing some of them is completely forgivable because it's a very complicated web it's it's i'm sure there's plenty that i don't know about and i've you know this is kind of my specialty but um yeah very odd that you that he either didn't come across that or didn't in any way mention it mm-hmm. but i suppose it doesn't it doesn't fit into his worldview as far as he's concerned muslims are sort of you know just brown-skinned, smelly immigrants who've, who've coming over here and, and taking jobs and taking up room on the streets and, and all the rest of it. So, I mean, he, he even says that he kind of concluded that al-Qaeda were the best terrorist group because they used a cell structure and because they were prepared to die. They were prepared to be martyrs in the name of their, their supposed cause. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a sort of oddly complimentary thing for him to say about people who should be his his kind of natural enemy um <laughs> yeah there's a lot of tensions in it i mean i haven't read the, the manifesto cover to cover i did spend quite a long time looking at it and actually thinking about it this this connects back to what we were saying before if you were um i mean you can find uh I'm trying to think of the right words. You can find Islamic terrorist training manuals on the internet, but the vast majority of the uh, documents that people are arrested for downloading, or the vast majority of these documents don't exist on the internet because so many of them are removed. You do have counter to that, the fact that the Justice Department did publish the Al-Qaeda manual on their website. But, you know, sidestepping that, one that is more of an, an anomaly rather than the norm in the case of you know if a, i'm just speaking hypothetically here if some islamic terrorist had done this if a muslim guy had done this rather than a white norwegian and he'd stuck a manifesto and a video up online how long do you think that would last online mm-hmm. do you think it would probably be taken down within a matter of days quite and censored quite stringently you can mm-hmm. still find breivik's video and his manifesto everywhere it's the easiest thing on the internet to find so yeah. They're clearly perfectly happy for it to be up there. They don't seem to have made any attempt whatsoever to take that down. That's even, true, yeah. Even though it contains some pretty horrible views and some pretty explicit instructions for how to carry out acts of violence. That's true, yeah. I mean, I was um, I was slightly wary about downloading it myself, actually, because I thought, this is probably going to put me on some list. <laughs> <laughs> Frankly, uh, we're probably all already on some list. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, was... I mean, if, if they are making lists of people who download these things then i must be on several of the lists because yeah, yeah, I, no, I have a vast no. collection of this stuff um <laughs> not from any perverse interest in it just because you kind of have to read the source material to understand the thing yeah, but absolutely. yeah i mean you're right there are some tensions in this in this manifesto that don't don't seem to quite add up to the sort of idealistically committed lone nutter that that breivik is portrayed as and that the official story seems to be saying he is mm-hmm. so yeah we're brought back to to where we started there does there are various indications of a wider conspiracy nothing concrete but there are certainly some indications um and the certainly the consequences of this whether intended or not do seem to have been tension the strategy of tension or some sort of slight reworking of it yeah that's it i mean even if this didn't have higher forces manipulating it then effectively the result is going to be the same because it's going to be exploited by everyone as you yeah you said at the beginning you know exploited by the left exploited by the right um exploited by the mainstream and the alternative exploited yeah. by the different politicians yeah. yeah 
that's it. I mean, so as weird as it as weird as it sounds, sometimes in these cases, it it doesn't even matter whether it was a, an inside job, as as Alex Jones would say. The the effect of it is always is always going to be the same, and that's a furthering of personal agendas, and and in this case, the the agenda of the state, which is to further uh, power and, uh, and and wealth, basically. Yeah. Mm. Well, and I mean, there is one other dimension to this that we haven't touched on yet, and that I don't think either of us got into in our radio shows. Um, and that's the question of intelligence failures, which is obviously a bit of a bugbear of mine, a bit of an obsession of mine, really. This notion that of foreknowledge or some kind of, you know, what, you know, the what did they know and when did they know it question. And this does come up in the Breivik case because uh, it's only available in Norwegian, sadly, but you can find English language newspaper coverage of this. About a month or so ago, the... Norwegian Security Service, who I think are the PST, yeah. I, don't, I don't know much about them, um, they're kind of national policing, their equivalent of MI5, I suppose. They published a report uh, on what kind of foreknowledge did they have about Breivik, what did they know about him, and when. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that Breivik's name came up in a international counter-terrorism intelligence operation known as Global Shield, which is, you know, very Marvel comics, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but, and as, as you can imagine, yes, this originated in America, yes, this originated with the Department of Homeland Security, um, and it was basically a, an intelligence operation to try and track the purchase and distribution of substances that you could use for making bombs, like ammonium nitrate. Yeah. Um, and Breivik's name turns up on a list of people in Norway who had purchased an amount of chemicals, though exactly how much is subject to some quite contradictory reporting, mm-hmm. had purchased some chemicals from this Polish chemical company, and therefore his name had been uh, turned up on as part of this Global Shield kind of monitoring program, and Interpol, I'm not sure why it would be Interpol, but they had handed this list over to the Norwegian authorities, and Breivik's name was on this list, but apparently they never really followed it up with anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what they've explained so far. And to be fair, if that's all they had, okay, to be honest, I don't think with just that bit of information you could really expect them to have then extrapolated that this guy was going to carry out a massacre and kill nearly 80 people. Mm-hmm. Um but at the same time, there's every possibility that more information is going to come out and it's going to emerge they actually knew much more, because that's usually the pattern with these things, is that once they open the door to the question of, well, what did you know, it yeah. turns out year after year, more and more, they knew actually tons. That might not happen with this case, and if it doesn't, and that is all they had, then I don't think we can criticise them too much. Yeah. Um, but it well, does... I mean- Sorry, Sorry go, go ahead. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, um, I mean, he was uh, quite prolific on, on the internet, apparently. So, I mean, presumably they, they could have put that information together with the purchase of this um, these chemicals from Poland and also his training at a, a gun club. I don't know. That would have raised, you know, red flags for me if I was in intelligence. Isn't that what the intelligence services are supposed to be doing, picking picking up on signs like this and piecing them together? Um, it is what they're supposed to be doing, and uh, you're right, those, there are some other things that you, you thought, you think, well, maybe they would have picked up on that, and, and maybe it will come out in, in the following months and years, that they did actually pick up on some more of this, and in mm. particular, Breivik's foreign travel. I mean, in, from like yeah. 2000 to 2008, he was travelling all over the place. He was regularly yeah. in and out of Norway, going to, not just to Britain, but to some some countries that you would have thought might raise the odd flag to the Norwegian yeah. authorities. So maybe it will turn out that they were actually monitoring him and had his name on lists as part of that as well. And and if that starts to be the picture that emerges, then very much so, I would say, I'd side with you and say, yeah, the, this is starting to sound like a cover story. This is starting to sound like, uh, what was the phrase I came up with? Intelligence failures that are fixed around the policy. <laughs> um, you know, deliberate intelligence failures, basically. Yeah. Um, that. That's a possibility, but I'm just saying at this stage with what we have right now, I wouldn't be too hard on them. So okay, we, we have to keep looking and keep gathering the, the information. Yep, sure. Well, Tom, we're coming up to the hour now, so I think we'll, we'll draw it to a close. But uh, it's been an interesting conversation. I think we've discussed some, some very interesting ideas there. Yeah, yeah, I think it's been good. Um, yeah, and of course, the Breivik trial is uh, scheduled for a number of weeks, so I know we'll both be monitoring 
that and maybe we can find some more information and uh, and do this again in a, in a week or well a few weeks or whatever yeah sure absolutely yeah, i'm all for that good to bounce ideas off each other i think i think it's mm. useful yeah so I would you it, i hope it's been interesting for people to listen to <laughs> well hope, hopefully yeah so would you like just like to um tell people where they can find your stuff and uh i think you're also appearing on uh tns radio tonight as well uh yeah yeah well i should be on tns radio at um about nine o'clock uh, shortly after nine o'clock tonight this evening um so in fact probably following the broadcast of, of this this show uh and you can find all of my work my films my writings everything really that i've done on uh investigating the com, and also on sunday evenings on resistance radio resistradio.com yeah okay. excellent stuff you enjoying the shows you getting into them i am i am uh yeah yeah good I stuff am doing it yeah well people are enjoying them so um excellent stuff i hope so all right tom <laughs> Nice to speak to you, and I'll catch you later. You too. Take care, man. Cheers. Bye.